Drugs. Rights. Quality of life. Recovery. Harm reduction. Advocacy. Policy. Treatment. Stigma. Drugs Uncut. The Scottish Drugs Forum Podcast. Hi folks and welcome to Drugs Uncut. Uh, This is the Scottish Drugs Forum podcast which is an informal yet informed space for conversation around drugs in Scotland. Now it might sound a little bit different to you guys because obviously we are in the middle of a lockdown. We're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is our first podcast episode that we have done uh, so far from these kind of conditions. So uh, so my name is obviously Andy Coffey, uh, Communications Officer at Scottish Drugs Forum. I'm joined by my normal colleagues Kirsten Horsburgh and Austin Smith and also our, uh, for the very first time joining us uh, on uh, the podcast today is our CEO Dave Liddell. So welcome everybody, how are you getting on? Hi, well, thanks Andy, it's nice to be introduced as a normal colleague. Um, and he is an abnormal yeah, colleague, yeah, thanks, Andy. <laughs> 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 sorry, normal, normal presenters on the show, sorry. That was what I meant to say, not normal colleagues, sorry. <laughs> so, uh, how is everybody getting on during this whole whole period? Uh, well, I'm fine. I, I've, unusually for me, I'm feeling kind of optimistic hearing uh, a mixture of uh, some awful things obviously happening, but there's some promising stuff in terms of innovation and practice. And I think just like everybody else, getting used to working from home and the idea that you can fall out of bed and into work in minutes. I, I, I feel the same, that there's definitely some examples of, obviously this is uh, really difficult times and people are um, really struggling. But at the same time, we've seen some great examples of good practice emerging. Um, I think probably some of the frustration for me is that um, you know, we have a dual crisis going on, a dual public health emerge, dual public health emergencies, and the COVID crisis has really highlighted what can actually happen when a public health emergency is taken seriously. So, a lot of the things that are happening um, for COVID, you know, it's frustrating that we couldn't have seen such an urgency and urgent action happening for the drug deaths crisis. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely a frustration. Working from home is a challenge, um, and it's certainly felt quite intense. Um, and but lots of projects to be involved in, and lots lots of work happening. Certainly still, uh, from even being home. And I was just saying, um, when we, just before we started there, I can remember, uh, about. Uh, just before this whole lockdown and everything started, I remember being in a meeting, Dave, with you and Austin and saying, yeah, but they're not going to shut down the schools and everything. And now thinking back, like, how naive <laughs> um, to be saying stuff like that when you see what's actually emerged since. So, yeah. I have a, I have a question, Kirsten. Did you, at the time, did you think that um, the chances of there being a lockdown were higher than Scotland perhaps having three weeks of continuous sunshine? Which one did you think was was the... <laughs> which one which one would you put your mortgage on? It's just kind of sod's law, isn't it? Like <laughs> it's absolutely typical that um we have a lockdown period in the middle of the only sunny period. This is probably our summer, so <laughs> enjoy it out of the window while you can. Well if if it's any consolation in the east of course there's always a, a bitter wind to go with the sun, so uh, it's not quite as warm over over this side of the country. Well, you can enjoy you can enjoy it from inside then all the more. Yeah, yeah, no, no, but I've been uh, I've been painting the back of the house, so that that's been the challenge. But now I've run out of paint, fortunately, so I need to find something else to do in my free time as it as it exists at the minute. Well, that was what I was going to ask as well. What has anyone got any challenges during this time? Have you set yourself any goals? 
Well, I plan well, to have the perfectly trained puppy. Oh, of course, because uh, for everyone joining, Kirsten just got a new puppy. <laughs> just before the whole lockdown. So, yeah, you'll be the best trained puppy in existence. <laughs> <laughs> Inside. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm very jealous of people who have a garden. That's been a massive challenge. <laughs> and Austin, what about you? Any challenges? Uh, well, I've, I've recently taken up window cleaning, so... Uh... <laughs> It, it was so it was so sunny that I decided to clean my windows. So uh, I've, that's something of a new talent I have, which may be marketable uh, during the during the forthcoming depression. I, I was up a, a ladder um, painting the 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 upstairs windows, and uh, my son, who stays with me, he was taking a picture to share with his uh, siblings of me up a ladder painting with in my slippers, <laughs> and of course my uh, my daughter in IC works in ICU was not impressed with uh, my inability to uh, to take, you know, appropriate measures to reduce my risks of harm. Inappropriate, inappropriate PPE, yeah. <laughs> well, I am uh, I'm continuing my learning of Gaelic. That's what I'm doing during this time. So I'm going to be learning a few more Gaelic words uh, during lockdown. I'll be coming out fluent by the end of it, I'm sure. I mean, don't don't be under any impression that you're going to be using that on the podcast. Well, man, it's Mr. Andrew, you know. So, it's for anybody listening in Lewis. Or, or Nova Scotia. Yeah, or Nova Scotia, exactly. So, uh, so first of all, uh, yeah, as, as I mentioned earlier, um, so Dave, it's your first time joining us on the podcast. Um, so for any of the listeners out there who, who aren't aware, obviously you're the CEO of SDF. Can you tell us a little bit about, about yourself and a little bit about your, about your role with SDF? Well, <laughs> that's a big question for. I didn't expect. I thought this was more of a a, a, a chat than. Uh, that's it. You're on, like you're giving, on the spot now. Giving my uh, full uh, CV. Um, yeah. Well, obviously, my role is to oversee the the work of SDF, um, including the strategic direction, etc. As well as uh, actually, certainly at the moment, in particular, trying to just coordinate all of our activity around COVID nineteen and, and and other work. Um, so that's that's probably brief enough, I would guess, in terms of what my role is. Um, I've been around quite a while, as people may may know. So you, you mentioned a little bit there about about SDF, and, I, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about some of um, how SDF has has responded to some of the challenges um, that are that you know with COVID nineteen, uh, obviously th- through our own kind of personal work, but also through working with external organisations as well, which is obviously a large part of what what SDF does. And so, Dave, you were instrumental in the guidelines uh, for contingency planning that came out on the seventeenth of March. I'm pretty sure. Nineteenth, nineteenth, nineteenth of March. Sorry, you're well. You're, you're the well, you're, I've I've been reading it this morning, so. Uh. <laughs> there you go. So uh, so today we were just um, going to be discussing a little bit about the guidelines, what they said at the time, and uh, when they came out. And obviously, this is a massively rapidly evolving situation. Every day it seems almost different. Although, thankfully, it's starting to feel a bit less uh, less hectic now. Um, yeah, so today I think we're going to, just going to discuss what those guidelines said, what's developed in that uh, in the time since they've been published, and also I know you're working on a, a second version as well. So, so what's going to go on, uh, go on in there? Maybe the 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 place to start, I suppose, at the at the very beginning. This was around early early March, I guess, is that we were uh, across a number of the local planning structures and uh, services, and it became quite apparent that. Uh, you know, there was the maybe high level contingency planning for flu pandemics, but there wasn't the detailed planning that uh, would be useful. So I um, 
after that I went to government to have a discussion with them about uh, potential guidelines and they agreed with us that that was uh, really needed so we worked with a range of partners to put those together including the uh, the sexual health and bloodborne virus uh, prevention leads uh, team which is part of or sits under Scottish Health Protection Network um, so we worked with them in terms of developing the guidelines and a range of other folk and I suppose in terms of the key issues that emerged at that time were issues such as uh, potential medication shortages um, community pharmacy disruption um, and disruption of injecting equipment provision, staff shortages, patient illness um, and, and isolation etc. So all of those areas we, we, we covered in some detail. I guess the, the first of those in terms of medication shortages doesn't seem to be um, particularly apparent. Um, certainly the, interestingly the, the community pharmacy disruption when we were writing it you know people were suggesting that we, we didn't write um, you know, pharmacies will close or their hours will reduce. Um, we write May, but actually, as it turned out, of course, is that we have seen significant disruption to uh, community pharmacies. And obviously what we've seen as part of that is um, limits on the number of people in pharmacies. Um, so you've had substantial queues outside of pharmacies. Some areas, I was hearing actually of another area, um, you know, where you, there were separate queues for people on methadone and people um, or the general public and some issues around that potentially, you know, for example, with the methadone queues moving quicker than the the general public queue and, you know, some disruption around that and, and indeed another area where there was actually fights broke out in the, in the queue and it needed management by the local uh, drug and alcohol service to assist with that. So those issues have emerged and obviously as part of that has been the need to move people off supervised daily dispensing of, of methadone or, or, or buprenorphine and move to take home um, supply which could be anything up to 7 or, or 14 days and obviously in areas such as Glasgow that have had most people on daily supervised dispensing that has been a massive shift in their practice. Um, but obviously what it, that, that has allowed has been, I suppose, more capacity um, within the pharmacies to deal with other issues that, that have emerged. I think some of the concerns around that, and Kirsten I'm sure will add to that, is in, is in terms of the, the concerns around increase in uh, um, fatal, fatal overdose as a result of people having significant amounts of uh, drugs in, in their home. I think, interestingly though, what has emerged is that many people have coped an awful lot better with that. And I think the key issue, and we'll write more into this, I think, in terms of the uh, the second version of the guidance, is, is actually how the most vulnerable are managed within that in terms of moving to take-home doses and, and the probably the obvious thing, certainly areas, areas have looked at a traffic light system where you know, the people who are most vulnerable are given much more support and probably still continue to receive their drugs on a daily basis through home delivery um, and, and other support measures with areas using, for example, volunteers um, or people who redeployed from other services, etc. Um, with regard to, to injecting equipment, I guess the, the biggest shift has been the fact that people are probably not really prepared to queue up for an hour or two at a pharmacy to get injecting equipment. 
So what we've seen is areas actually moving to um, postal delivery, and that seems to be the, the, the pattern across the country, um, although not, not everywhere. So areas have talked about a click and deliver or a, potentially a click and collect service, but a, a click and deliver seems to be the one that the areas are moving to to try and keep up the levels of uh, supply of injecting equipment. Staff shortages has, have happened um, because of staff needing to self-isolate, staff illness, but also in terms of staff being redeployed. And that's happened to varying degrees across the country. Some areas have not done it at all, but um, most areas have done it to, to some degree. So that's a huge challenge to services to keep doing what, what they're doing. And we've also seen a number of services actually move to working from home, so less face-to-face -face contact as well, which has is, is also been quite challenging. And then the last issue maybe, and again we'll cover some of this in more detail in the revised guidance, because the guidance that we put out uh, on the 19th of March was pretty high level, and it needed to be at that point, but I think now we've got more knowledge of actually what's going on on the ground, so we can make that more specific. So for example, in terms of people that uh, needing to be shielded, so they need to be at home all the time, they need to have you know appropriate deliveries of their medication, um, and food and other things and I think there's discussions locally ar around that that group who are defined as needing shielding should actually be much larger than it actually is um, because of people with a range of underlying health conditions particularly respiratory uh, conditions but also things like uh, you know high blood pressure etc um, so that's that's important I think that we look more fully at that group and maybe going back to, to the I suppose the issue of obviously they're not um, medication shortages but actually shortage of street drugs has been the other aspect that we've seen now I think reports from across the country that of significant reductions in, in supply of illicit drugs, um, significant increases in price and that has already I suppose encouraged more people to, to, to seek help and support so the importance of having swift access to OST for people who are seeking support is vital and of course that's pretty challenging when areas are, are actually or some areas are actually you know almost um, you know reducing their services and uh, you know trying to just hang on to their existing clients or, or patients rather than being still open for new people to come in and support them and I think certainly one of the areas that that's been particularly highlighted the need for swift access to OST is the move to move most of the rough sleepers into hotels and hostels and that's been seemingly very successful um, in our major cities to, to do that but obviously what's needed alongside that is actually that people have appropriate access to, to, to drug treatment particularly OST so that they can stay um, in that accommodation and not um, need to go into the streets to actually seek out uh, drugs to support their uh, dependency. And Dave, I was just wondering if uh, if I could ask there. So, so it seems like there's been some really interesting changes to to service delivery in that time, such as you know, take home methadone for for perhaps a week, um, postal delivery of IP and naloxone we've been hearing and these are perhaps things that in some areas were not really kind of um even considered before is is do you think there's going to be some really kind of perhaps positive outcomes that come out of 
out of this in the sense of maybe a bit more kind of um, open thinking around how services are delivered? Absolutely. I think the, you know, we have to um, make the most of, of, of this crisis in, in that regard. And particularly, I think, to, to one of the things that we're looking to do is do a piece of peer research to try and map, if you like, the people with drug problems experience through this whole process. And part of that will be how people manage, say, on seven-day um, take-home supply. And we have heard that from workers, you know, comments like, I was surprised, you know, I'm, I've been really surprised how well my, my clients are, have been doing. Um, and I suppose it is that issue of a, maybe a, a very paternal type of provision um, and not giving people responsibility to, to look after themselves. So I think some of those aspects and also obviously the, the move to, to get people off the streets, it shows what incredible things can be done in a crisis and, and why, why can't we do that routinely? Um, that 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 you know, um, in a society, it shows that we can do that if we really want to. So it shows What's that in, in normal times, actually, you know, we don't want to. What's your thinking, Dave, about whether some of these measures will, will stick following the crisis and the lockdown, specifically around that takeaway, uh, dosing and the postal deliveries and 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 I guess. Um, you know, we, we need to have a think as well about what's going to happen with people who've been put up in the hotels as well and, and you know, whether that will be something that, you know, I would hate to think that after this whole crisis is over, things just retreat back to normal. Yes, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's where, you know, that it's important to actually track, you know, people's experience of, of, of the changes as well to try and Im embed them into to longer term thinking, uh, you know, um, I, I think the other aspect to that is that, you know, we have a lockdown, we may have a loosening of the lockdown and that then we may have a return to a lockdown again. So I think this is one of the other challenges for our response is that actually, you know, for example, the postal delivery of injecting equipment, you know, we might have a, a, a reversal of the lockdown, then do we move straight back to normal practice, if you like, through pharmacy provision? Um, and then move back again to postal delivery, well, that would make no sense to, to, to do that. So I think, you know, the longer this goes on, um, I guess, hopefully, I mean, not, you know, obviously I don't want it to go on long, but I think the reality is that, that uh, the crisis and the pandemic will go on a long time, and therefore more of this practice will hopefully become embedded into to, to routine thinking. I think the, the rough sleepers stuff, um, you know, I would like to be really optimistic that that, w that would change our practice entirely. Um, uh, I, I, you know, and I would hope, let, let's just stick with uh, being optimistic about that. I mean, I think in other areas, um, yeah, we've seen such a difference in terms of, for example, take home between Edinburgh and Glasgow that you would like to think that there would be a, a move towards a, a more parity of, of, of approach. Um, we're also in the the guidance also going to look at specifically at um, you know benzo benzodiazepine prescribing as, as well because obviously that's a big issue that's emerged I mean not emerged really but is 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 now I suppose quite apparent that that actually people are using significant amounts of benzodiazepines and if we're asking people to uh, stay at home and isolate themselves that is very hard when the only supply of benzos they can receive are um, illicit 
street benzos. So we do need to look at that as part of um, you know the, the practice uh, going forward as well. Um, I think you know hopefully with naloxone as well that there will be a freeing up of uh, supply of naloxone, which which you know can be maintained over the long term as well. I'd be interested to know going forward actually some of the clearly some of the things that have been innovated are actually cheaper than the the present set up, uh, including daily pickup of methadone and so on. So those are the things that are more likely to stick, unfortunately, uh, that reality eventually hit us about the, the economics of the situation. But the other thing is just about the expectations of individuals. And I've worked in homelessness in Glasgow for years and was told there was a hardcore group of people who were involved in rough sleeping. Uh, and for various reasons, were put possible reasons were put forward that they would refuse to come, come indoors, as it was a phrase that was used that they would always rough sleep uh, no matter what uh, provision was offered. And actually what I'm told now is that in the streets of Glasgow there are literally a handful of people who haven't engaged in the hotel provision. So actually workers now understand that that's, that's just a myth. And also individuals themselves realise that in certain circumstances they can uh, live indoors and uh, accept support. Uh, so actually people's aspiration, if you like, uh, is changed by all of this. Uh, it's not just a question of what the services decide to do, it's about what people actually want from services. And it's about raising people's expectation of how services can be more person-centred and more um, delivered in a more humane way. Yeah, and it, 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 I was just uh, reflecting on the fact that uh, I visited services in uh, the Netherlands in 1988 and they talked about uh, the basics being food, methadone and shelter. Um, now, of course, you know we want an awful lot more than that, but, uh, but actually... It, this crisis has showed us that actually if people don't get um, you know, the very basics looked after in terms of their food and their accommodation and their drug use, um, then we'll not be able to work with people on other aspects of, of their situation. Yeah. So hopefully that again is a, you know, it shouldn't have been a lesson that we needed to learn, but hopefully is one. Just to take you back to maybe a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a month ago, when when this was kind of all starting to 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 come to a head, and I was just wondering. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, thinking about potential issues that were going to be faced. That's obviously why the contingency planning uh, was produced. But I was wondering if if there's any fears that have perhaps not been uh, realised, which which might be you know something positive out out, out of this. I mean, I suppose so far. Um we've we've obviously seen significant disruption to community pharmacy but we haven't seen many closures i think um and obviously that's one of the big issues that we've been looking at in terms of you know i suppose work around the guidance is is the fact of if you do have actual closures of pharmacies um who are dispensing say methadone to 200 people how will you actually deliver that service in another in another way um, so we haven't seen that so far, and hopefully, uh, with the lockdown, we're, we're now, you know, unlikely to see that, and and people have hopefully had more time to develop appropriate contingencies to to to, to deal with that. Yeah, I, I think most of the rest of it has been fairly uh, predictable. I mean, I think the the move by Scottish government to to highlight the fact that addiction services or drug and alcohol services need to be seen as essential services is, is welcome. I think the difficulty is that, you know, when areas were, were if you like, it's not too fair to say panicking, but they were in the, the midst of, if you, if you like, the, 
the sprint around this pandemic as opposed to what we now realize that it that it's not just a sprint it's a, or it was a sprint at the beginning but now it's a marathon that we have to get through so i think hopefully there'll be a move to um push some of those redeployed folk back and also some of the uh, services that actually moved significantly to working from home that they would actually move to have you know face-to-face -face contact as well with 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 their clients i mean maybe one of the other bits in terms of um you know interesting things about i suppose practice emerging was one of the issues to, to do with the more vulnerable folk getting daily telephone contact with their services and people the feedback you know this is anecdotal obviously from small numbers of folk but the feedback was that this was actually really good for them and they appreciated that daily contact rather than a a six-week visit to a clinic which maybe wasn't a very nice experience in any case um, so maybe that goes back to, to you know to Austin's point that, that people you know will hopefully have raised expectations as to what the service can deliver and it's also the case I suppose that if we are um, able to deliver things that, that save resources in some areas maybe then we increase other aspects of the provision you know particularly those aspects around the therapeutic relationship and it and it has always been you know a frustration i guess for for me and sdf that we've focused so much on ost um because it's not delivered very well but if we could get a position into a position where that's delivered well and is, is freely accessible then our abilities then to focus on the things that that you know really help people over the long term alongside that can be significantly in, enhanced and we're not just, you know, continually trying to, 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 to focus on the inadequacies of, of, of OST and trying to Im improve that. Yeah. And some of that um, information that we've had from local areas, Dave, like specifically around the telephone calls being really useful um, for some people and some of that home delivery, that's come from information from a key informants group that was set up. I wondered if you just wanted to mention about how that came about. Yeah. I mean, basically, we'd produced the guidance and then we realised that we didn't have, and really no one had, a national overview of actually what was happening across the country. So, together with um, folk from the, uh, the subgroup of the Drug Death Task Force, the, the Medication Assisted Treatment subgroup, um, we put together a, a key informants group and that, and that was really, you know, we identified from across the country that we thought could give a, a, an update on what was happening in local areas. So we had the first meeting of that, uh, you know, when was that? It must <laughs> be three weeks ago now. Three weeks it? ago. Was that the 1st of, uh, I think the 1st of uh, April. That's right, April Fool's Day. Yeah. And then it, the, the, the following one was, was two weeks later. And that proved really important in terms of highlighting specific issues um, around things that we needed to address. So, for example, the issues of, uh, you know, pharmacy disruption, all of those issues that we fed then back into government. And, for example, the last meeting, one of the issues that was was apparent was that there's virtually no um, bloodborne virus testing going on at the moment, and that's that's because the, the, there's no analysis that's being done of the dry um, blood spot tests. I think that's 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 actually really worrying, um, particularly what you mentioned earlier about some of the queues outside pharmacies to get injecting equipment. People just don't wait. So 
Um, obviously, you would then think, well, are people then going to be sharing more injecting equipment? And clearly, we already have an HIV epidemic in Glasgow. There have been cases in other health board areas as well. So it is quite worrying to think that that might be something that's happening that we're just not identifying just now. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, that, that you know, leads us to another piece of work that we did was put out uh, information materials for people who inject drugs on the basis that because of the, the shortage in, in injecting equipment going out, um, that people will have to reuse their equipment and particular advice that we've given about how you should do that safely. Obviously, that's not the ideal. You want people to use clean equipment every time they, they inject. Um, but that was in recognition that that as a as a specific issue. But no, that that's that's exactly right. That's that's hugely worrying that that, that actually we're not having an eye on that. Um, I suppose the you know one of the things I suppose is an advantage in a sense is is that that people are now more isolated. I know that's also uh, a, a problem for individuals, and 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 that's another area I think that. Uh, you know, needs looked at. I know government is doing that on a bigger scale in terms of actually the issues around mental health. And as we know, significant numbers of people with drug problems have underlying mental health issues as well. So isolation is, is hugely challenging. But the point I was going to make, I suppose, is that, you know, hopefully, I suppose, with that greater level of isolation, there is less opportunities to, to share equipment. But, but we don't know that. Um, and there may be pockets of uh, sharing of equipment. And it doesn't take too many of those pockets to actually increase the, the, the spread of um, hep C and HIV um, in populations and obviously we've seen you know significant problems in Glasgow and uh, but hopefully in with the the rehousing of folk in hotels there's actually you know appropriate OST and appropriate levels of injecting equipment going into into those specific locations as well so that people don't uh, need to or, or, or you know don't share the other thing um that has been quite difficult to really get a clear grasp about is about the scale or the numbers of drug related deaths that are happening through this period as well um and i just wondered dave if you had some thoughts on that clearly we're hearing through the key informants group about um near fatal overdoses and that people are recording more of them but um, there are obviously some concerns about whether we're really getting a grasp of the scale of drug deaths happening just now, and what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree that that we we don't have a a handle on that, and I think the concern obviously would be that that we won't during this period. Um, so we need to do what we can to make sure <laughs> that we do have a decent handle on that. Um, and that's both in terms of fatal overdoses, but also deaths through COVID-19 of people with, with drug problems as well. So we have a, um, because, uh, you know, as you described, you know, this, this is a, you know, a, there are two emergencies going alongside each other. Um, and obviously what we want to do is get the balance right so that the harm is reduced to people with drug problems in total, whether that's a death from COVID-19 or a fatal overdose. Um, and that balance is very difficult to, to get right, clearly. Um, but without decent knowledge of actually, you know, you know, what people are getting sick, you know, what, you know, people, what people are, you know, what the numbers of people dying from both COVID-19 and fatal overdose, we're not able to make, you know, or inform those judgments about uh, the practice going forward. 
So Dave, is there any update in terms of people being released early from prison and what the challenges might be? We haven't seen significant numbers of, of releases so far. Um, but obviously what we do have is in the prison population and those that are likely to be released, significant numbers of people with substance problems. And also, partly as a factor of being in prison, um, people may lack accommodation to go to on release from prison. Um, so we've got to link up those being released from prison for this, for, to the existing services, particularly the, the homeless services that we've put together and the continuity of care around OST. And maybe one of those other aspects, obviously the prisons are moving to a greater use of uh, the long-acting injectable uh, buprenorphine buvidal. Um, and that was one of the other issues, obviously, is that, um, that we'd want to see um, that available in the community um, so people have appropriate choice as well because obviously if you've got a, you know people can choose a uh, a four week uh, long acting drug that, that that would help them a lot in terms of keeping themselves safe but obviously that's not you know suitable for everybody and it has to be at the end of it about client patient choice in terms of which OST drug that they're, they, they go on to. So that's us come to the end of our first COVID-19 uh, specific episode. I suppose there's going to be a lot more of them in the meantime. Um, so you might have noticed that today's episode is slightly shorter than normal. Normally we go to about an hour, just but we're going to decided to keep things a bit more frequent, a bit more short, because obviously this is a very rapidly evolving situation. Um, so I just want to say thanks very much to Dave uh, for joining us today on the podcast. So we'll definitely have you back on, Dave. You've passed. You've passed the podcast. Oh, oh. I think especially when we have our updated guidance as well um, it would be useful for people to hear more about that so we could definitely have a chat about that perfect cool well until next time then thank you very much and goodbye